0: Hear now the word of God. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believe, who have believed, they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to bless his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are needy people who are still Burdened by our sin nature, we haven't been perfected yet. We are still in this life, and we are still in this world, and we are still hemmed in on all sides by our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Would you use your word, together with your spirit, to do a work in our lives, and prepare us to leave this place once again, enabled to fight the good fight of faith. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. There are a lot of wonderful things about being Presbyterian. One of my favorite things is the fact that we have a catechism. Uh, I know that might seem silly, but I am a little bit of a nerd and I do like those sort of things. But uh, maybe for those of you who don't know, a catechism is a teaching tool that involves questions and answers. Uh, Part of the reason I love our catechism is because I grew up in a church tradition that not only didn't have a catechism to help me understand the faith, but we didn't have even a confession that was written down. And so sometimes I would have a question, and there was nobody I could go to except my pastor. And so I was quite the pest for a stretch there, and some would say it hasn't stopped, but I was a a huge pest to my pastor, and uh, I just... uh, Every Sunday, I was keeping him after, answering questions and questions, and it would have been nice if he had just said, hey, go to this thing and leave me alone. Uh, (laughs) Maybe he wanted to, I don't know, but he was a godly man. He didn't really do that. but one of the things that I, I, I discovered was it's so good to be in a church where, where you can know these things, where you can have your questions answered, where you can have the Bible summarized. That's exactly what a confession is. That's exactly what a catechism is. And they are a gift from God. Now, they are not Scripture. It's not the same thing as reading Scripture when you read a confession or when you read a catechism. But what you are reading is a summarization of the teachings of Scripture, The boiling down of thousands of pages of of teaching into something that can be understood. And in our catechism, especially, there is a section where it goes through all 10 of the Ten Commandments and it asks these questions. And one of the things it does is it says, hey, there's a positive side to this command. God is not just telling us not to worship other gods, He's telling us to worship Him. So there's a positive and a negative side to each of the commandments. And if you go to the fifth commandment, you find that not only is it it saying don't lie, which it certainly is saying that, the ninth commandment is, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. But there's a positive side to that. And part of what it is positively telling us we should do is that we should, and I'm gonna quote from this, the ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man, and of our own neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. So, in other words, uh, we have a duty as believers to promote truth between our fellow man, between us and our neighbors. We have a duty to protect our neighbor's good name. Now that is very counterintuitive in the age that we live in because the whole cycle of internet and television news is entirely built around taking someone down all the time. So when you turn on the news or when you go to a website, usually the first thing you see at the top is, who's going down today? Who's been made a fool of today? Who looks silly today? And in a sense, the posture that most people have is this posture that says, who's going down? Who have we caught? Who have we busted? And yet the Bible is clear that when we hear slander, when we hear rumors, our posture should not be a posture that is ready to entertain accusations. Our posture should actually be the opposite. We should be people who are interested in preserving the good name of those around us, unless we're required by circumstances not to. And this morning's passage relates to the question of false accusations and slander within the church. When or if we are falsely accused of something, how should we respond? Is there anything that can be done? Just to be clear, slander is a false report. It's a twisting of the truth. And in our passage today, Paul faces two slanderous accusations back to back. So the question I have for us is, how does Paul deal with that? How does he answer slander? Well, we'll find out under three headings. The first is sensing the accusation. The second is satisfying the accusation. And finally, surviving the accusation. So sensing the accusation, satisfying the accusation, surviving the accusation. Let's see, how does Paul deal with something in such a heated environment like this? What does he do? Well, first, sensing the accusation. Paul arrives in Jerusalem. He comes bearing gifts. He has been planning this trip for a very long time. He has money for the Jerusalem church that he's collected from all of his travels And he's been stopping in each church and he's been receiving their collection. He has quite a bit of money, almost certainly uh, enough that you, you almost wish that Paul would have a guard with him. And so he has stopped along the way. And not only has he been collecting money for the church, but he has been doing something else at each stop. He's been getting warned. Every time he stops, people are telling him, Paul. There's trouble ahead. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to end up in chains. And God's been using those events. Maybe you remember about three weeks ago, we looked at these warnings and we saw that God is using these warnings to prepare Paul, to get get Paul ready for exactly this moment. And so when Paul arrives the first day, they're received gladly, but then day two comes. And it's time to get down to business. They meet with James. They meet with the elders. um, And Paul initially says, God's been doing great things through through me and, and ministering to the Gentiles. And it's almost like James doesn't respond. Instead, he sort of brushes past the good news and gets right down to business. And he tells Paul in verses 20 and 21, there are thousands of Jewish believers who have heard rumors about Paul. And here's what they have heard. They have heard that Paul teaches all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. By the way, this is a challenging passage. Everything about this this passage is incredibly difficult, incredibly complex. So, um, you know, bear with me here. Um, But how do we sort out this rumor that they've heard? How do we sort this out? First of all, the issue of circumcision was settled at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. If you remember, the presbytery met and they came to this conclusion. Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the ceremonial law in in order to follow Jesus, in order to be justified. But the accusation here is that Paul goes beyond that decision and actually tells Jews that they should not keep the ceremonial law, which is very different than what Acts 15 determined. So is this true? Is Paul actively steering Jews away from keeping the ceremonial law? Is that what Paul's doing? No, at least not entirely. He did tell Jews and Gentiles they were set free from the obligation to keep the ceremonial laws now. But he never forbid them to either. So there's a difference, right? There's a difference between telling someone you are not obligated to do this and telling someone you are obligated to do this. And he is telling them you are not obligated to do this. And he is not requiring them to set aside the ceremonial law. One of the things we see in Acts 16, for example, is right after the Jerusalem council, what does Paul do? He has Timothy circumcised. And he, he doesn't do it so Timothy can be made righteous in God's eyes. He doesn't do it because Timothy needs, to, needs this in order to be righteous in God's eyes or justified. But he does it because he wants to minister to the Jews. And if he was totally opposed to keeping the ceremonial law... He would not have even done that. He would not have even done that. So there's nuance in what Paul's views are. And that nuance is totally missing in the version of things that James is relating to Paul. There's no nuance here at all. That All they hear is, you told these Jews to stop keeping the law. And that is not what Paul did. And so what James has done is he's identified a slanderous accusation against Paul. And now he's about to propose a solution. And we're going to see that solution in the second point. But I want to stay here for just a moment longer before we move to the second point. Because James here has been presented with a ninth commandment opportunity. It's it's an opportunity that relates to Paul's good name. Remember, the ninth commandment says that we should preserve the good name of our brother or sister. And James has heard something that not only damages the good name of a fellow elder and apostle, but it has the potential to injure the church. And so he does the right thing by bringing this directly to Paul. Now, before we move on to James's plan for dealing with the slander, I I want us to reflect for a moment. If we hear something negative about another person, especially another believer, what should our response be? We should have two responses. The first is we should ask this question. And it's a question we don't like to ask because the answer is usually yes. The question is, is this gossip? In other words, is this information I should even have? Is this thing that I'm being told my business? Uh, In other words, is it part of my sphere of is it something I should be caring about? Uh, You know, if you're an elder in the church, I would suggest the list of things that you should know about in the church is larger than somebody who's just an average member. Um, You've been given spiritual oversight of people's lives. You probably are going to know things about people that not everyone in the church is supposed to know. But the question is, if someone comes to you and says, did you hear this about so-and-so, the question is, is this information I should even have? Is this my business? And I would say this, if the person this information is about is not in the room and is not part of the conversation, it is probably gossip. And I have to say gossip is one of the easiest sins on earth. I mean, sins are easy to commit. Don't get me wrong. But gossip is the invisible sin, and it's so smooth, and it goes down so easy, and it feels like a prayer request every time, you know, we need to pray for so-and-so. And And they're not in the room, and they don't know I'm telling you this. Um, But it happens so readily, and it happens so easily, we don't realize it's happened until things are already out of hand, and the hurt has taken place. So if we discuss other people with other people, it is, like, it is like fire. It's like fire. You really can't control it once you let it go. It just starts going and it never stops. That's why James spent so much time in his letter warning us the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. And that's why it's so important, especially in the church, For us to be careful how we talk to each other and how we talk about each other. When you catch yourself gossiping, notice I don't say if, you know, the right thing to do is on the spot. When you notice it, mid-sentence, just stop and say, you know what, I just realized this is gossip. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have even, we shouldn't have even been having this conversation. I wish I'd never entertained it. Let's just stop and talk about something else. How are you doing? What's going on in your life that you'd like to share with me? Um, Maybe you realize after the fact that you gossiped. I've had conversations where afterwards I went, did I just gossip? (laughs) You, You think about it after the fact and you realize, I think I just did. I didn't even notice it. It slipped by that easily. How do you deal with that? My suggestion is, at a bare minimum, reach out to the person you were gossiping with and tell them, I regret having that conversation. I am sorry. It was sin, and I was leading you into sin by keeping that conversation going. We need to be more willing to call ourselves when we know that we're doing things that are damaging to the body of Christ, even if we felt innocent when we were in in the moment doing it. But let's assume for the sake of discussion that the thing you've heard isn't gossip, that it is something that is your business, that you have this information. Well, then we have a second duty, which is this, that we have the duty to reach out to the accused person personally and discuss the issue, just like James does. Not too long ago, I I heard talk on the internet of another pastor in our denomination, and He was accused of teaching serious errors and his church was accused of serious errors in practice. And so I thought, well, rather than looking at all the blogs and seeing what so-and-so has to say and see what so-and-so's conclusion is, why don't I just email him? So I reached out to the pastor and I said, hey, you've probably heard the chatter on the Internet. I don't care what those people say. I want to know what you say. And I contacted him personally and a few days later he wrote back to me and he answered my questions. And the thing that struck me the most was he had this sincere thanks for me because I had reached out to him personally. Instead of asking some angry person on a blog what they thought that he said, I asked him. And he said, I have had lots of people talking about me and very few people talking to me to find out what he personally taught. If something is our business, if we sense the accusation as we see that James does here, we need to, if at all possible, do what James does and reach out personally. Reach out in a brotherly way to the person who is accused. That is what James does here. He sets a pattern for us. And so that's the first thing that happens. Sensing the accusation. The accusation is there. What do you do about it? Well, you need to act on it. And that takes us to the second thing this morning, which is satisfying the accusation. Uh, James has presented Paul with these issues at hand. People are misunderstanding the nuance of his teaching. By the way, speaking of the Internet, that is another place where nuance is entirely lost. It is not the right place to engage in the marketplace of ideas. People are not ready for nuance. People on the Internet are looking to pounce. So, so understand that that's not the place to engage in important ideas. It just simply isn't. Um, people misunderstand Paul here. They, they spread the word just as easily as a false uh, statement on Facebook. It spreads like wildfire. And so it's spread about Paul. And Paul isn't telling people they should violate the ceremonial law. But he also isn't telling people they should keep it either. He's, so there's nuance there, right? Right? people want to just put it in one of two camps, Paul, law good, Paul, law bad. And that's what they want to say. It's one or the other, right? And Paul says, well, let's think about this. And as soon as he says, let's think about it, people say, ah, he's just trying to wiggle out of this. There's no room for nuance. How do you get across the nuance of your view? Well, James and the elders in Israel or in Jerusalem sort of hatch a plan. If this works, it will show that Paul agrees with the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, and it will show that Paul isn't teaching the Jews to forsake Moses. Now, before I go further, I want you to know that James's plan is difficult to follow. I looked at a number of commentators sort of trying to interpret James's plan. And all of them seem to disagree about the details of what is going to happen. So rather than walk through bit by bit everything, I want to give you the four steps of what Paul's going to do, the things that aren't really disputed. Uh, The first thing is, the first part of the plan, Paul is going to go with four Jewish Christian men into the temple. So these are men, they, they appear to have taken a Nazarite vow. I'm not going to read it, but if you're interested in the Nazarite vow, it's in Numbers chapter 6. And the Nazarite vow involved shaving your head and abstaining from the fruit of the vine. It's not just just wine, but actually grapes in general. Like you wouldn't have anything from the vine. Um, And it's sort of like a ceremonial dedication. That's what these men are doing. So the second part of the plan is Paul's going to go along with them. So Paul is going to be present. He's going to be visible. He's going to be seen in the temple. And the the idea here is, look, why would Paul be in the temple if he was preaching against the temple? Right? How can this go bad? The third part of the plan is Paul's going to be purified with them. This is the weirdest one. I don't know what else to say. Uh, We aren't exactly sure what this means. Uh, he might have taken a Nazarite vow for himself. At one point, Luke relates to us that Paul had his head shaved and made a vow. This could be what's going on here. But he's going to go along with these men. Probably it involves some kind of purification, uh, possibly after being in Gentile territory for so long. Uh, and that would make it possible for him to worship at the temple. Whatever Paul did. The elders believe this is going to refute the slander, and it's going to show that Paul is not opposed to the law of Moses, that now he sees it just as a thing indifferent. The word we use for this is adiaphora. We use that word for anything that the Bible doesn't command, but also doesn't condemn. Things that are considered indifferent, something the Bible doesn't say to do or not to do. Uh, what should I have for breakfast? It's adiaphora. I had oatmeal this morning. The Bible doesn't tell me to do it. It doesn't tell me not to do it. It's adiaphora. And in the same way, Paul sees keeping the ceremonial law as a thing that is adiaphora, neither here nor there. And that's what this is going to show. Finally, the fourth step, Paul is going to pay for them. So, with the Nazarite vow, once the time of your vow was over, you would present an offering at the temple, and the offering. It wasn't like tithes in the Old Testament, which were from food and agriculture. But this was actually a financial offering. You would actually put money instead of an animal or plant sacrifice. So Paul paying for their offering is another way for him to demonstrate in a public way that he is not personally opposed to following the Old Testament, Old Testament customs. So long as they aren't required of Gentiles. I think it seems very strange to us as Gentiles this far removed from the time of Christ, but now that Christ has come, these ceremonies aren't forbidden. Paul is showing us here that they're not forbidden, but thankfully they also are not required. They are what we call things indifferent. And that's how Paul has consistently treated these things for his entire ministry. And this requires us to sort of think about what the ceremonial law is and what the ceremonial law means. The ceremonial law relates to things like like priests being consecrated, to uh, people being cleansed, uh, houses being cleansed for leprosy. It relates to food laws, how you eat. It relates to going to the temple and offering sacrifices. And Jesus says... In Matthew, that he didn't come to abolish those laws, he came to fulfill those laws. So he didn't come to make them go away necessarily, he came to complete them. And so, if you were an Old Testament Jew and you're performing these ceremonies and you don't have the Messiah in mind when you're doing them, all you're doing is a hollow gesture. It's just a hollow gesture without Christ. And the book of Hebrews says this about the ceremonies. He says, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So without Jesus, those ceremonies are just hollow, empty shadows. They mean nothing. It's just going through the gestures. It's just going through the motions. And so the plan here at its core is a plan intended to swat down the slander to swat down the misunderstanding and the error that is being spread. And Paul consents to the plan. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul explains his thinking. What would lead Paul to do something like this? What would lead Paul to preach circumcision isn't required for salvation, and yet also preach that uh, it is not something that a Jewish person is required to give up? He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. What we are seeing here in the text this morning is not gospel compromise This is gospel sacrifice. About 1,600 years ago, John Chrysostom was preaching, and he was preaching on this passage. And he admitted that it is an incredibly difficult passage to reckon with. And his conclusion is this. Condescension is what it is. Do not be alarmed. Condescension is what this is. And so he says... Paul is condescending for the sake of the gospel. He's returning to a ceremony that he doesn't have to keep so that he can preserve his witness with the Jews. And this is something Paul has done all his life ever since coming to Jesus. And Paul is really hoping that this is something that will silence the slander. It will prevent confusion. It will bring peace to the church and it will clarify the message that he preaches Hopefully, the nuance of his views will come out. Of course, that requires people to hear what he has to say, which is part of the problem. So Paul satisfies the accusation, or at least he tries to. Before he's able to complete the seven days of purification, a new accusation is raised. And so in point three this morning, we have surviving the accusation. This is a new accusation. That gets raised against Paul, and the accusation comes from these people that Luke calls Jews from Asia. They lay hands on him, and the accusation is connected to the one from the previous point. They say Paul teaches against the people and the law and this place. In other words, they point at Paul and they go, hey, this guy is anti-Jewish. This guy hates us. He hates our law and he hates this temple. By the way, there are people like that. We just saw that violence yesterday in California as someone shot people, Jewish people, at a synagogue. It is a wicked and evil thing to do something like that. And as Christians, we must speak out against that sort of evil when it happens. It distresses us when it happens to our people as in Sri Lanka And it should be distressing to us when people do it any other place as well and any other house of worship as well. Ironically, Paul is really in the midst of disproving this. He's he's proving that he doesn't hate the temple. He's proving that he doesn't hate the law. He's proving that he doesn't hate the Jews. I'm one of you. And he's in the middle of this. If they would just talk to him. But they don't. Instead, they say something else. They say he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. If you go into the temple or if you went into the temple, uh, there was a court of the Gentiles and there was a court of Israel. And if you wanted to go from the court of the Gentiles to the court of Israel, there was a sign and an inscription greeting you. And this is what the inscription said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. (laughs) Uh, So that's no joke, right? Going into the court of Israel, if you're a Gentile, is no joke. You have no one to blame but yourself for your death. Now, Paul has been with this Greek, a fellow named Trophimus, in Jerusalem earlier, but he, he isn't with Paul in the temple now. These people see Paul and they assume the worst about Paul. And this is the second accusation against him. But what happens? Well, with the last accusation, there was something they could do. At least they hoped they could do. They, they thought logically we can do something which will disprove this falsehood. We'll show that this isn't our view. But, but in this moment when the whole city is stirred up and people are screaming and they're trying to kill Paul... How do you sort that sort of situation out? Even when the soldiers come out and they rescue Paul, they can't sort things out. Luke tells us some in the crowd are shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. How do you sort out this sort of thing? Uh, The answer is sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't sort it out. Sometimes your view doesn't get explained. Uh, It was not very long ago. I think it was only a few weeks ago. Roger Scruton got fired from a job that he was doing for the UK government. Why? Because somebody misrepresented things that he said. They said it on Twitter. Everybody got angry about it. Everyone demanded that he be fired. And then later, people read what he actually said. But it was too late. The mob acted without knowing. We are living in an age of knowledge without wisdom. Knowledge without wisdom. And that's, that's the mob that Paul is dealing with here. He's, he's on Twitter right now. <laughs> he's on Facebook right now. Everyone's angry at him and screaming at him. No one cares what he really believes. No one cares what he really thinks. And so you know what? Sometimes you don't get accurately represented. Sometimes you just make it out by the skin of your teeth. And you're glad you're still alive. And he escapes By the hands of the civil magistrate, actually. And it's an opportunity for us to remember and praise God for good civil authorities. One of the most important functions of the civil government is they preserve our freedom to be able to preach the gospel. And they enable us to live another day for Jesus. And sometimes that's all we can hope for. And that's what Paul gets here. Maybe you do get falsely accused. Maybe things don't work out. The thing that should sustain us is that we, isn't that we win in the situation. Sometimes we don't win. Sometimes we don't persuade people. Sometimes the truth doesn't come out in this life. We may never be able to convince the crowd of our innocence. I think the answer is this. Sometimes you don't get to sort things out in this life. Sometimes you just survive. And that's what Paul does here this morning. He doesn't change minds. All he does is survive the accusations. Next week, we're going to see that he gets a chance to publicly defend himself. But understand, he never convinces the crowd. Spoiler alert next week. <laughs> he doesn't convince the crowd. He never convinces them. Because by the end, they're still calling for his death. He gives his speech. Their minds aren't changed. The slander sticks Even though it isn't true. Christian, you are going to be slandered. If you believe what the Bible says, you are going to be slandered. You are going to be misrepresented. People are going to stick words on you that you don't believe. People are going to put words in your mouth that you don't agree with. You need to be prepared. You need to look at the example of Paul here. Because this is where we may find ourselves either in the future or in the present. And in the face of slander and false accusations, whenever they arise, we have to be content to rest in the fact that God knows the truth, even if no one else does. We have to be convinced that our God is bigger than the crowds. We have to see that our God is bigger than those around us. We have to trust that he knows the truth because he is our God who is all-knowing. I'm going to close with a quote from Derek Thomas. Uh, He reminds us what we need to remember in moments like this. False accusations are easy to make and difficult to undo. Once made, someone is going to believe them, no matter what the evidence to the contrary may be. When Christians are falsely accused, sometimes the only resort we have is the assurance that God knows where the truth lies, even if our brothers and sisters do not. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that on the one hand, our conduct would always be innocent and pure, so that any accusation that is raised against us would always be a false one. But we also pray that when such accusations do arise, that you would give Christians the wisdom to know how to deal with those accusations, that you would protect us of all people from slander or gossip, that we would not entertain a negative report unless we must. We pray especially, Lord, that you would help us to follow James's example of first going to the accused in person. Help us to follow Paul's example of self-sacrifice. Help us to set aside our priorities for the sake of the gospel. But if all else fails, Lord, and we find ourselves facing injustice, help us to endure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?